We've reached this section of the letter that <clears throat> Paul lists imperatives, and Paul does this in a lot of his letters. He writes and deals with issues in the life of the church, and he deals with what we in, uh, in, who study these things call the imperatives, uh, the indicatives and the imperatives. And in a lot of his letters, he starts off with the indicatives. He talks a lot about what is true. He talks a lot about what we need to know. He talks about a lot of the, the issues that are going on and he addresses them in various ways and it's not until later in his letters that he switches the voice of his dialogue. He goes from telling them things that are true uh, to the voice of imperative. Telling them things they should do. The voice of command. And that's what we have as he transitioned um, uh, in this text to, to a bunch of imperatives. We say the imperatives, that's the voice of command. Telling people what to do. There are different ways you can talk about something. I may say, um, would you please close the door? And I'm asking you to do something. But if I say, close the door. It's an imperative. It's a, it's a command. It's, it's telling you that I would like you to do something. And Paul does this as he reaches the end. He's given pretty, plenty of practical guidance along the way throughout the book. Uh, it's mixed all in there. But here at the end, it becomes very condensed. His applications, right? He has a set of, of staccato imperatives. You know, staccato is like, you know, one after. And so he just, he just kind of gives them to you in machine gun fashion. You know, without any real explanation uh, of what he means, he doesn't go into any great depth and, uh, and doesn't talk much about how to do them. He just says to do them, right? To respect those who labor over you, to esteem them, to be at peace, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone, to not repay evil for evil. And the list goes on. But every single one of these is a sermon. And I, and I know if we did this, we'd be into August or something. So I'm going to do a chunk today. I'm going to do a couple over the next two weeks and we'll, 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 we'll finish out. But in that first list, he gives us this this. He addresses the life of the church and some of the attitudes and the things that are going on toward the church in a, in a series of things. Um, and I put them together because he kind of shifts gear in verse 16, and we'll come back to those. But he addresses the church, and he starts with the church. He basically starts with the church's attitude toward its leaders. Right? Isn't that what he is talking about there? He asks you, brothers, sisters, brethren, Church, people of God, we ask you, church of Jesus, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who, whose job it is to admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Those who labor among you and who are over you. If you read Paul, that's fairly clearly he's talking about elders and deacons. Right, he's talking about those classes, and as you read into Second, Second, First and Second Timothy, and to Titus, and some of the other epistles, he makes very clear as he defines church leadership more more clearly here. He he, uh, he doesn't get too particular, but he talks about the men who labor among you, who work among you, among you. And the first thing that we notice about this group of people is that they're workers. They are laborers. They work on behalf of God's people for the welfare of God's people. They are servant leaders. And I can tell you that the men in this church who serve in that capacity, your elders, are those who labor among you. These men, if I can say, labor hard in ways that you don't even know and understand. 
And they meet for hours at a time dealing with issues that many of you don't even know exist. And they put in hours not just of time and labor, but of emotionally pouring themselves out in trying to serve the life of the church behind the scenes and taking care of the things that need to be dealt with. They can get tired. And they can get discouraged. And it is hard labor. And it is draining work at times. And I would encourage you just as Paul does, and as he says it, I ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect these men. To respect those who are working hard and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you to esteem them very highly in love, to encourage them, to pray for them, to respect and allow their work to not be difficult. That's what he says in a couple of other places. I'll read 1 Timothy 5.17. Paul writes to the church and he says, let the elders who rule well, those who are over you in the Lord, that is the ones who rule, let them be considered worthy of double honor. Respect them and esteem them highly in love, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, that there are pastors among you as well. But there is that whole, the elders have a position, it's a positional, they are over you, they rule, and hopefully they rule well. But God has given them positional authority and He does it in the Lord. It's not just a position, but it's, it's a spiritual position. It is something that God is doing. As He has structured His church and as He has given men to serve in this capacity for the health and welfare of the church. And apart from them, I don't know in so many ways how these things would, would venture forward in the life of the church. Were there not men like ours who are genuine, hardworking, love You and love Christ, and give of themselves so that we can be healthy. Hebrews 13, Paul, well not, not necessarily Paul, somebody writes, the author of the Hebrews, maybe Paul, um, writes and says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Right? They are over you in the Lord. They rule and they mean to rule well. For they're keeping watch over your souls. And this is truly the heart of the men I know in this church who love Christ and love you and who take their job very seriously. As those who will have to give an account. Give an account to Christ. In other words, again, that their job is in the Lord. And they, they will, in one way, give an account to Him. But also, their, whatever is in it of, of honor will ultimately come from Christ. But they are His ordained leaders. To you brothers who are the ones about whom we're talking, I would talk to you. You who labor among us in these ways. To not become weary in doing good. For you serve the Lord Christ. It is in the Lord that you do these things. And we give an account to Him. And it's hard at times and it is draining. But we serve a risen Christ. And he identifies the exact, the specific nature of the work, at least as it relates to this church, and as he encourages the church to, to respect these men and to honor their work in that sense and to esteem them. And he says, because they are over you in the Lord and they're the ones who admonish you. Admonishing is hard work. Admonish, to admonish means to come and lovingly correct somebody. Right? It's to warn somebody because you love them and care for them of the danger that they're in, the danger to their souls, the dangers to their lives. And so, to admonish folks is to say the unpopular things or the hard things, to say it lovingly because you love them, but somebody has to speak into our 
lives in this way. And so their job is, as it says, they're over you and they admonish you. But they do it because they love you. And this then, as the application of that whole text, is simply that, the attitude of the church toward its leaders. That's what Paul is after. That's what Paul is asking for. How we posture ourselves towards those whom God has put in those positions to esteem them and love them and respect them. And the prerequisite then, this is a prerequisite as he tacks on, it kind of in between there at the end of 13, he tacks on, I think that this is a prerequisite to, to the next admonition, the next imperative, which is to be at peace among yourselves. Let there be peace. It's a prerequisite. Because it's easy when we all agree. Peace is easy when we don't have any anything that ways that we're at odds or, or not on the same page with each other. That's easy work. But it becomes hard when there are disagreements, different opinions, different perspectives, different preferences. And then, then peace becomes more challenging. And respecting and trusting our leaders in the midst of those times, I think, is the first avenue toward peace. Because it's very easy in the midst of things to, to get a, a bad attitude, to get a wrong attitude. And it can affect the life of a church. And I think the first, the first then in terms of how can we be at peace among ourselves, the first aspect of that I think is, to, is, the, is the attitude we keep toward our leaders in the midst of those things. But beyond that, I think there's more because he moves on as he speaks this to a whole congregation. He speaks it to all of us. We need to hear it spoken to each one of us. Be at peace among yourselves. I imagine Jesus standing in the prow of the boat in the midst of a chaotic storm. Sometimes the church is like that, isn't it? Sometimes, and I imagine Jesus standing in the bow of the boat and saying, be at peace. And let the calm of Christ come over us. Be still. Protect the peace and the purity of the church. And so Paul, as he says this about the attitude towards our leaders and the need for peace and how those things relate together, but it is a peace among yourselves, among all of us together. And then he makes this list and it just kind of throws them out again. And we urge you, brothers, he's speaking to the whole church now, brethren, we admonish to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with them all. They're typical problems in the life of the church. I believe that they're problems that Paul knows are going on in the life of the church in Thessalonica, and that's why he speaks to them. And, but I think that they're also very common. They're in some ways basic Christianity, basic church life. The idle, or we're going to get into that in a moment, it's more than that, but the, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And the peace and the progress of the church comes as we patiently and graciously deal with these issues in the life of the church so that we could be at peace among ourselves. That we would do these things. And how we handle each difficulty differs, right? We see that it differs depending on the nature of the problem. We're to admonish some. We're to encourage some. We're to give practical help to others. And we're to show patience to everyone. But who do we admonish? He says, to admonish, verse 14 in the beginning, admonish the idol. I think idol is, is not the best translation there. It is not helpful. Idol is one sort of aspect to it. The word literally means to be disruptive. 
or to be unruly. The word, it, what it literally means is to be out of line. It's used of soldiers who are marching or soldiers who are, you know, moving forward in a line. You know, keep your ranks. And, and, and this word, the unruly, are those who are out of line, who've gotten out of rank, who are being in that sense insubordinate or, or disruptive to the rank and order of things. And so to admonish those who are unruly, to those who have ultimately insubordinate, who have a bad attitude and can go back to some of the other things that we were just talking about. Because attitude infects the people around us. And when there are folks who can adopt a bad attitude in the midst of a life at church, and this is, this is not I'm, you know, saying, speaking of something specific in our church necessarily, this is church. It's definitely church in America. It's definitely church throughout history. And this is the way that it goes. It one, you know, so one bad apple can infect the whole barrel. And there's, you know, bad attitude is contagious. And when we are negative and critical, or we cop an attitude toward the leadership or toward this or toward that, it's very easy for that to infect the life of the church. And so the first thing he says is to admonish the disruptive and to those who are out of line. And interestingly, this is one of the jobs of the leadership to do. And he says, those who are among you and who admonish you. But also notice that he speaks more broadly in 14 though, he's speaking to all of us, that this is all of our job. All of us are to speak to the unhappy and the contentious, who can disrupt the peace of the church. That it's all of our job to lovingly warn them to the dangers and the pain that it can cause. And that all of us are called to engage in that work of stirring one another up toward love and good deeds. And admonishing one another at the same time. The faint-hearted and the weak are not to be admonished. They require a gentler touch. He says to those, we handle different people in different ways. We should encourage them and to help them. This morning we know we have at least one family who is going to be tempted to be faint-hearted. And who is going to need help. This help as he speaks to here, I think it can be a physical, this weakness or this faint-heartedness is definitely in heart and spiritual, but it can also be in very practical ways when we're called to love each other and, and to do those things. And so when He calls us to, this is our job now, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, step up where they are going to need help with patience to all of them, graciously and gently. Come alongside. The weak can be those who are struggling with sin. And we are to be encouraging them and helping them. Those who are having difficulty stepping up and stepping forward in their Christian life. Difficulty fighting and dealing with sin. People who are struggling. the spiritually immature. Who have not been able to step up. And these are folks we are to come alongside and help. Not shoot our wounded. Right? To not put them out, but to come alongside and to help them forward. And he says the church has all these kinds. Right? This is every church everywhere in all time has all these kind of folks. They have the unruly and the disruptive, and they have the faint-hearted, and they have the weak. And our job is to be doing this among ourselves, loving each other and patiently caring for and nurturing and ministering to each other. I said each of these is a sermon, but I leave with those things. I, I move quickly through that 
list because I want to spend a little bit more time on, I think, the bookend to be at peace with one another is verse 15 where he goes with it where I want to spend the rest of our time where he says, see to, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always, always, always seek to do good. To do what is right for one another in the body of Christ. And to everyone, he says. Right? This is one of those things, it's one of those, I think, pieces of truth and wisdom that if we obeyed it, uh, would change everything and probably would have the power to change the world. There's a few of those like they call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Imagine if everybody lived that way. What would the world be like if you never treated anyone in any way other than the way that you honestly expect people to treat you? Right? And the way that you want it. And this is that same kind of truth. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, ever. But always do good in the face of whatever evil you encounter. Just imagine, imagine for a minute if you always gave good. If always you responded with kindness and gentleness and love. If always, no matter what you received and no matter what was thrown at you and put on you and laid upon you or said about you or done, and you were a fountain of life and goodness. That's what he's talking about. It's, it's a beautiful vision, a powerful vision of what it's supposed to be like to be his people, to be like him in this regard. Whatever evil you have experienced, never answer in kind. Never answer in the same way. Never, when you get that tone of voice, give that tone of voice back. But a soft answer turns away wrath. When you receive wrath and you give a soft answer, a different tone of voice, a different response. Paul's putting a real practical edge on the call for brotherly love. He's been doing that throughout the whole book in a number of places. Most recently in chapter 3, verse 12, calls us to, to brotherly love. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, if you remember, he says, I have no need to teach you guys about brotherly love. God Himself is teaching you about brotherly love. And then here it is, the very practical edge of brotherly love of what it means to live in community and to be His people. Is that when we are seriously offended and hurt by each other, Evil. But in the church, he said, among yourself, right? That's the first application. He says, first, you know, to one another. And then in the world out there, he says, when you receive evil from one another, whatever evil, he says, when you have been seriously offended or hurt in the body of Christ, he says, my friends, never return it in kind to each other. Return evil with good. Be gracious. Loving, patient, forgiving. It is tragic, my friends. And I know in my own life, and I deal with it in my own marriage and in my own relationships, it is, it is tragic how much we are, are thinking and are feeling and are behaving, how much what I am and what I say and what I think and feel and do is shaped by, driven by, and controlled by what other people say and, and do. Other people controlling who I am, what they think of us, their attitudes. You got that attitude toward me? I got this attitude for you. You treated me like this, this is how I treat you. Are you going to give me that? I'll give you this. What they say, what they do, their tone of voice. 
How often do their wrong and sinful and attitudes and actions determine my emotions and thinking and attitudes and actions? And he says, the Bible is saying, God is saying, Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, no, 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 never, 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 never. Don't let anyone ever to anyone return evil in kind. Don't be the, 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 the source to come back. There's a cycle of sin here, right? You see that. Somebody, you know, evil with evil, which produces evil, which produces evil. I mean, there's this cycle, this downward spiral of sin. Who's going to break the cycle? To give something different in return to the sinful attitude and actions that we often find confronting us, always seeking to do good for the sake of the whole body of Christ. Because when the peace that we are called to seek is broken by a cycle of sin like this, it's the whole body that suffers. It festers like a sore. Think for a moment, where do you feel wronged? Where do you feel like you've been hurt? In church? And he says, then, for anyone. So out there, at work, in the family, your extended family, your, your people sitting next to you on the pew and the but definitely in the church, he says, start there. Where do you feel that you have been in some way wronged, hurt, slighted, offended, mistreated? And how does it make you feel? And how do you want to re- respond? And what Paul is saying, and where I think the application of this is to open yourself up to Christ in it. That something different might be poured in. So that something different might be given out in how we respond. What he's telling us is, Don't be controlled by the Spirit of other people, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and be a spring of life and goodness to other people, even in the face of their evil. Don't let what they say and think determine what you say and think. Don't let them, don't, don't let what they are or the way that they're behaving, you know, determine who you are. Don't let the way that they're behaving shape your actions and so forth. We're not to be controlled by our circumstances and the people in our lives. We have to address the deeper issue of who we are and who we are going to be. Who is Christ within us? Who we are must be determined by the presence and the power of Christ. Not other people. But how often do we blame other people for the evil that comes out of us? (laughs) How often do we blame other people when I spew angry whatever and I say, it's your fault, you made me mad. How often do when I'm impatient or whatever, it's like, well, you made me. If you weren't like this, I wouldn't be like that. Paul says, never, never. God says, no, 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 no. But where can we find the grace and the power to let the sins of others literally fall on us and then die with us. Where the cycle breaks here and something new is given back. Where we don't respond in kind. Where do we find power for such a life? Was it not when we were hostile to God and When we gave evil to God that He returned grace and salvation to us. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says this, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That is all of us outside of being filled with the Spirit. 
we are in the flesh and, and before we're Christians, we're fully in the flesh without being touched by the Spirit. And how often the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And how much in the, in the face of our hostility, what has God returned to us? What has God given to you in the face of your hostility? Romans 5.10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Doesn't Jesus still suffer our daily sins? Doesn't it daily that we offend Him in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds? Do we not daily give to Him evil in a sense? Do we not daily manifest those things which are and what does He return to us but daily bread? And delivering us from evil. And giving us what we need and leading us in the paths of righteousness. My friends, we need a deep well of spiritual life. We need a deep connection to the vine to be able to bring forth. Jesus says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. But if we are in the vine, He says, you will bring forth much fruit. And this, it is only this connection to Christ. We must walk closely with Him to know Him and to love Him and to daily empty ourselves and repent of those things which are not right and which are, I know are a bad attitude toward whether it's leaders in the church or other people or people I work with. Or I have to be emptied of that attitude and cleansed and filled and renewed so that I can go forth as a, as a spring of goodness that in the face of the evil that you might put forth, you might find Christ shining forth from His people in the midst of a dark world. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I close with this idea, He says, you brood of vipers, speaking to Pharisees, maybe sometimes I think He's speaking to me, you viper, Robert, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And this is where we say, let's keep this up there for a minute. You know, we're out of the abundance of the heart we speak. And we, whatever it is that come out, Jesus says, we want to blame out there. The Pharisees like to do that. If I wash my hands, I can be clean from... Like it was out there somewhere. And Jesus is saying, it's out of a man's heart that all of these things come. And it's out of the abundance of the heart when I say things and when I treat people in a certain way and when I have an attitude when these things, where does it come from? It's nobody else's fault. Jesus says, that is the abundance and the overflow of your heart. That is who you are in that unguarded moment when your life has been shaken by evil. And what comes forth is us. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The good person, out of the good treasure, brings forth good. Even in the face of evil. But it's the bad person, the evil person, out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So what we need is a good treasure built up in our souls. A fullness so that out of the abundance of which I can always return evil with good. 